met, I, I don't remember when I met him, but at Church of the Savior in the uh, early 2000s at some point, I probably met him when he came back. But anyway, I've known Jason for a long time. I was a full-time pastor from 2005 to 2010, but then got into commercial real estate somehow. And uh, that's kind of what I do. And I still do some, some preaching here and there at a few churches that I'm connected with. And then my wife and I came here during COVID when our church was uh, online and you guys started meeting again. We were kind of coming and hanging out for a bit uh, and joining you guys in person. So it's good to be back. Long self-intro there. Uh, in this 10-week series, 6-8 has been looking at the Ten Commandments. And uh, these are the commandments that God gave to those who love him. And with each commandment, we see that there's a corresponding New Testament passage and kind of indicating to us that the Ten Commandments remain in force today. Uh, and the Ten Commandments, they haven't changed. And so they continue to teach us and show us how to follow God and glorify him well and how to live our best lives possible. And so as Jason laid out in the first week, the Ten Commandments break down into two groups, right? Commandments 1 through 4 teach us how to love God. And Commandments 5 through 10 teach us how to love each other. And so really those two great commandments that Jesus talks about when he's asked what the greatest commandments are, love God, love others. That's what the essence of the Ten Commandments are. And so today we're going to look at the Ninth Commandment. In Exodus 20, 16, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then in the New Testament, James provides a very vivid description of the power of words and how words, um, you know, we, we can't bear false witness because words are very powerful. In James 3, 2 through 12, he says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grape tree, a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's open with prayer and then uh, jump into this. Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word, thank you, thanking you that your word is trustworthy and true, that we can rely on it, that we can stake our lives on it. 
And would you speak to us this morning, Lord, um, meeting each of us where we are through your Holy Spirit and communicate your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In episode 102 of Seinfeld, now, you know, I guess Seinfeld, it's not as popular as it used to be. It's, it's much older now. But uh, Jerry is interested in a policewoman named Sergeant Tierney. And the two of them get into it a little bit as soon as they meet because Jerry denies watching Melrose Place. And Tierney doesn't believe him. And so Tierney says, well, let's try you on the lie detector test. And of course, Jerry is lying. And so he's pretty nervous about taking the lie detector test. And he's wondering how to beat it. And then he remembers his best friend, George Costanza, is a master liar. No one's better. George lies about everything all the time. And so he gets this idea that George can help him. So Jerry says, so George, how do I beat this lie detector? I'm sorry, Jerry. I can't help you. Come on. You've got the gift. You're the only one who can help me. Jerry, I can't. It's like saying to Pavarotti, teach me to sing like you. All right, well, I've got to take this test. I can't believe I'm doing this. And so he gets up from the cafe to walk out to go take this test. And George says one of my favorite Seinfeld lines ever. He says, Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. And of course, you know how it is. Like a lot of things on TV are funny that aren't so funny in real life. And that's the world we live in right now. It's not so funny. It's not so funny. We live in a world of fake news and alternative facts. Both Pew and Gallup recently released poll data uh, stating that the media faces a crisis, a credibility crisis, because it's losing trust from its viewers. One newslet news outlet accuses this politician of lying. Another news outlet accuses the politician on the other side of the aisle of lying. And it's well known, of course, that if you can control the narrative, then you can direct the course, just as James says. And so from the leaders of nations to media outlets to the common person on social media, and sometimes even in our own hearts, it's very difficult to understand or discern what is true. Because we live in a time when we make truth what we want it to be and we cancel anything we don't want to hear. And so this disregard for truth makes it a scary time. And so we come back now to the ninth commandment. And as we go through this commandment, we're going to consider four things. Number one, what is false witness? Right? Let's define it. Let's define the commandment. Number two, what are the consequences for disregarding this commandment? Number three, why is this commandment good? And then number four, how has Jesus overcome the liar? So what is false witness? What are the consequences for disregarding it? What is the good of this commandment? And how has Jesus overcome the liar? So what is fa false witness? This commandment, rightly understood, it, it says, do not bear false testimony against your neighbor. And a lot of times we, we think of it as saying, do not lie, but it, it's more specific than that. It has a communal aspect to it. And the, the NIV application commentary says this, giving false testimony is explained at least in part in Exodus 23, 1 to 2 and 6 through 8, where the context is clearly legal. 
It's a legal context. It refers not to lying in general, but to bearing false testimony in court. As with the other commandments, the focus of this one is not solely on personal morality for the sake of being good. It is rather on how one's behavior affects the health and well-being of the fledgling Israelite community as a whole. Another commentator, J.G. McConville, in his commentary says, the ninth commandment illustrates clearly that the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, aims at sustaining the life of the community. It is not a direct and general prohibition of lying, but concerns, rather, false charges brought against one's neighbor, that is, another member of the covenant community. And so, within Scripture, what we see is that if an accused is found guilty the witnesses who testified and brought that judgment or that condemnation, they have to cast the first stones of their execution, that is. And the, the idea there is that if they were lying, if they were giving false testimony, those stones will come back at them, that they will face the same fate of being stoned to death. So they must cast the first stones if they've misrepresented or if they've testified. And so this, uh, this commandment applies to things like slander and gossip and bad-mouthing and just kind of malicious talk in general. And I would also suggest that it, I think we can apply it, we can extrapolate and apply it to the accusations that take place in our hearts as well. For Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of looks at all these uh, the, the, these external act actions and says what's happening in your heart is the starting place of those actions and in Matthew 12 34 he says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and so there's really two dimensions to how the heart accuses the first dimension are those accusations accusations that we level against one another right you, you know how this is you get into, a, you know, a little thing with your spouse, perhaps, hypothetically speaking, and in your heart, immediately you start to accuse, right? Well, she doesn't respect me, or he, he doesn't appreciate me. Not in our marriage, of course, but hypothetically. The second dimension are like the whispers you hear in your head accusing you, right? We all hear these whispers accusing us a lot. I think. You know how it is when you, when you go to bed and you think about that thing that happened that day and you think, oh man, I really screwed up. I, I'm not sure I can recover from this. I'm not sure I can repair the damage that was done. Or in the morning, you maybe wake up and you feel anxious about your day and the whisper comes, you're not working hard enough. You're not doing enough. And so in both of these dimensions, these accusations, I will say, come from Satan, who Jesus calls the father of lies. And we'll, we're, I'm going to come back to this uh, source as, as Satan, the accuser. But there's a spiritual component, and particularly when we get into it with other people, there is a spiritual component that grips our hearts. It's our sin and, as well as Satan's influence, but we accuse from the heart. And so the ninth commandment relates to the health of the community and the way we accuse one another and ourselves both publicly and in our hearts. 
That's what this commandment is talking about. And so it may not appear to address every little white lie, like, you know, if you're planning a surprise party and you lie to mislead a friend because you're planning a party for them, like, is that a wrong thing? However the Bible may answer that, and your conscience can kind of figure that out, but um, this commandment is not talking about that. That's, that's not what's coming into play here. That's not what is in view. It is much more uh, public. It is much more communal. It is much more legal than it has in view. And so we begin to see the importance of this commandment and the, its impact on the community. So let's dive a little bit deeper, and we're going to go to the next point, which is what is that impact? What are the consequences for disregarding this commandment? James says that there is great power in the tongue, and he uses three analogies, right? He, he talks about horses, ships, and forests to describe the great danger of careless words. Words, James says, can direct our whole body and ignite a great firing blaze within the community, and it can even lead us to hell. It's pretty scary and terrifying <laughs> words from James. But what we see is that the primary consequence of the accusing heart is conflict and violence. And we can quickly, quickly think of examples in our own lives or globally. And history provides some of the most extreme examples. I mean, Hitler accused Jews for everything that was wrong in the world and murdered millions, justified the murder of millions. Lenin and Stalin murdered even more people by accusing them of not supporting the state. Putin today accuses the West for a war that's killing tens of thousands. And domestically, we have mass shooting after mass, mass shooting because shooters are accusing others of mistreating them, overlooking and ignoring them, or maybe just being different than them. In politics today, I mean, it, it kind of feels like slander is part of the job description. We see our politicians on left and right accusing each other, utilizing accusations to further agendas and cling to power. And so we see these consequences. They're everywhere of the accusing heart. And yet we don't have to look outside and look at the globe to, to see these things. If we're honest, they're in our own homes, right? The accusing heart infects our very own homes. We already talked about marriages and, you know, maybe you argue over a light fixture or something in the living room, uh, hypothetically, and, um, you know, the same, that accusing heart, right? She doesn't respect me. He doesn't appreciate me. And then it happens with our children, you know, we, oh, they're not respecting me. Or children look at their parents and they don't understand me. And it ceases to be about light fixtures at all. <laughs> it becomes about one heart accusing another. And that consequences are dire. I mean, we see broken families everywhere, divorce, children not speaking to their parents, brothers and sisters alienated from, an, from one another. Because the consequences of false testimony and lies, whether spoken or in the heart, it's always alienation, conflict, and violence. But on the flip side, heeding this commandment has wonderful benefits. It is a good commandment. It is a good command. And so let's talk about that. What, why is this a good commandment? Well, the good news for the people of God is that the world has always been disastrously corrupt, lying and accusing. <laughs> and yet, God sustains 
his people. God sustains his people despite all of the corruption, all of the lying, all of the accusing. God sustains his people, so we do not need to fear. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments and when they were given. When God called the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, they were slaves. Their identity was tied up with the Egyptian people, and as they came out, they didn't have an identity of their own. I mean, they didn't feel any kind of um, self-worth. Their perception of themselves was that of a slave. And yet they came out, and God gives them these commandments. He gave them the Ten Commandments, not as law. It is law, but as the formation of a people, of a nation. It's analogous to when the United States broke from Britain and created the Constitution, which one striking thing about the Constitution, as much polarization as there is politically today, everybody agrees on the Constitution. It's a striking thing, the unity that we have around the Constitution. And yes, God gave a law, but we have to see the law in the context of the formation of a people. That's what the Ten Commandments is. And the law is there to provide a just and equitable society that protects life and causes flourishing. It is good. It is good. And so look at what Moses says. So we're looking at Exodus 20, right? So the giving of the Ten Commandments is in Exodus 20. The next, uh, a few books later in the Bible, Deuteronomy, Moses gives the Ten Commandments a second time in in, uh, Deuteronomy 5. Well, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses explains to the people what God's law represents. Take a look at four, five, uh, verses 5 through 8. Moses says, See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Friends, the king of this world, or the kings of this world, have always used lies and accusations to secure power because Satan is the king of this world, and Jesus calls him the father of lies. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan stands accusing God's people day and night, but we serve a different king. We are children of a different father. Our Father gave the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments reflect His own character. Our King is the King of truth. He speaks reliable words. No fake news, no alternative facts. Our Father is the Father of truth. And this is why we have the Ninth Commandment, to be lovers of the truth and haters of false witness, is to be like our King and our God. 
We don't obey because we have to. Jesus has kind of changed the landscape a little bit. But we don't obey because we have to. We obey because it embodies the giver of life. Telling the truth embodies the giver of life. And the commandments allow outsiders to look in and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And the people of God are a nation. And our citizenship in that nation supersedes our citizenship in any other nation. And so we proclaim the truth and live in the truth because to do so is to live near to our Father and our God. And fear not. Fear not. Because even in this terrifying time, Jesus has overcome the liar. This is our fourth and final point. Jesus has overcome the liar. Satan is the king of this world, and he is the great accuser. But the king, the Lord, has overcome Satan and all his accusations. I mentioned how uh, Revelation 12.10 says that Satan stands accusing us day and night. But the context of Revelation is Jesus overcoming him. Let's look at Revelation 12.10. It says, now, now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You see, Satan has always stood accusing God's people, and he stands accusing you, and he stands accusing me. He whispers it in our ears, right? And he whispers it in our loved ones' hearts as they, you know, get into arguments with us, and, and we fight. And he recounts all of our sins to God. And the thing is, often, Satan's telling the truth. We are those sinners. We have done those things. We do falsely accuse others all the time. The stones we throw are stones that Satan is throwing back at us. At work, you know, I get frustrated with a, a contractor or a vendor, and, you know, my, I start to spew uh, venom against their character. At home, I argue with my family and I accuse them of disrespect. When friends don't text me back, you know, I, I accuse them of taking me for granted. And now I'm not even talking about, like, looking at things on the global stage where our hearts start to spew all kinds of things. But Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are masterful at justifying ourselves just as we accuse others. And without knowing it, you know, we're casting stones, but the name on the stones is our own. <laughs> and this is where Jesus steps in. This is where Jesus steps in. Yes, Satan's accusations are often true, and we are sinners. But God has already punished our sin. You see, on the cross, God drove the nail with my name on it into Jesus' hands. And he drove the nail with your name on it into Jesus' feet. And every sin, every false statement we've made has been nailed to the cross and paid for in Christ's blood. So that now, because of Jesus' work, any word condemning God's people is a false testimony. Yes, I was guilty. Yes, you were guilty, but now we are guiltless. 
We were once children of the accuser, but now we are children of the father of truth. And this is why James is so forceful with his words. The centerpiece of James's statements are, or of his statement is verses 9 through 10. And he says this, he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. A spring of water can't pour forth both fresh and salt water, and a fig can't bear olives, and a grapevine can't bear figs. So when we speak badly about others, we're perpetuating the evil of the accuser. But when we speak words of life and words of truth, we are showing ourselves to be children of the king of truth. And we draw near to our heavenly father. And so in our homes, you know, as we fight with our spouses and our children, our parents, you kids, <laughs> those are my kids back there. I'd say we have to keep our eyes on Jesus and ask him. This is, this is something I've, I try to do or have been trying to do lately is to ask Jesus to tell me the truth. When we get into arguments, when I get into arguments um, with loved ones or, or anyone, you know, ask Jesus to tell you the truth. And the thing is, Jesus provides real help. <laughs> he really does. Unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of times what he's going to tell you if you ask him that is he's going to tell you things you need to work on yourself or ways that you need to kind of like lay down winning for the sake of reconciliation. And um, I often don't want to do it. When I ask Jesus to tell me the truth about the situation, I usually don't like what he has to say and I don't want to do it. And so we wrestle around a little bit, you know. And eventually, I try to say, okay, uh, and, and recently, I don't even remember what the situation was, but I had to say, <laughs> well, you got to come with me. <laughs> That's what I said <laughs> to God. I'm like, you come with me. And the whole time, I go to say words of reconciliation and apologize, and um, I'm like praying like that, that God is, is right there in the situation with me. But he really does. He provides real help. And once in a while, he'll, like, tell you how to address the other person's wrong in a way that's full of grace and reconciliation. But he provides real help. He provides real help. And it's not always an easy road, but it's helpful, and it's reconciling. And so where accusation leads to alienation and violence, Jesus leads to reconciliation. And so we're going to wrap up here, but I do want to say one final word about fear because I, I think that we live in a time full of angst. We live in a world of fighting, and the sad truth is that wars, wars will increase and mass shootings are going to increase. They just, they just are. That's the world we've, we live in right now. And it's making many of us afraid. And we look to our politicians for help, and yet we, you know, they make us more afraid because we see nobody helping, just everybody bickering. But the good news is this. Our politicians can't help us. 
Our politicians, our president, will never usher us into the promised land. There's only one king that can usher us into the promised land, and that is King Jesus. And so it's kind of disappointing that we can't rely on our politicians. And at the same time, the world has never been able to look to kings to lead them into the promised land. Kings have always operated this way. But we can take comfort in the fact that it's in the context of unjust, corrupt, unruly kings that God has always sustained his people. And I'm not saying that every, every politician is bad at all. I, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of politicians, quick aside, because <laughs> I sounded kind of harsh, but um, I think a lot of politicians are trying their best. But, you know, just like the rest of us, right, we all have jobs. We don't do them perfectly. We fail all the time. You know, we are all sinners. So it's not a, a knock against them. It is, it is just sen- simply to say that our disappointment in our politicians shouldn't make us afraid because God is our only king. He is the one that leads us into the promised land, and he is the one who has sustained his people through every rising nation and every falling nation. And our citizenship belongs first and foremost to the nation of God's people, not to the United States. We're also citizens of the United States, and it's good to be patriotic. Our first identity is in Christ. And so God has always sustained his people, and so we we don't need to fear when we hear all these accusations in the news. Let us not join in, right? Let us not join in what Satan is doing. The world's always been corrupt, but the Lord has always overcome. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we can rely on you, that you are infallible, that you are always truthful, that your word can be relied on, and we don't have to doubt. And even as Proverbs says, Lord, that um, when we're unsure, don't trust in ourselves. Don't, Don't rely on our own thoughts even, but we can trust in your word. And so thank you for that. And we do pray for your help, Lord. We pray that you would bring your peace to our hearts and also um, alleviate through your cross, alleviate the burden and guilt of our sin. And then, Lord, give us grace to extend to others and, and bring reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.